I empathize with you. It's not easy to accept from a local community standpoint when you go through that boom-bust cycle. We will probably continue to be a victim of our own success. So have confidence that it's going to come back. Those assets, the rocks, they're still there. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we're talking about oil field economics, how supply and demand shape the health of one of the country's most critical industries. My guest today understands these dynamics more than anyone out there. And as much as we'd be tempted over the years to correct the market, he insists the forces at work are working the way they're designed to work. It can be hard not to want to step in and help the industry. For all the great boom periods in the oil industry, there's almost inevitably busts. These hurt the most vulnerable folks the hardest, those who put in an honest day work week after week and then find out their job's gone because two foreign countries you'd be challenged to find on a map have gotten into a price war. Also, why do oil prices suddenly go up? My guest explains a few of these boom-bust periods in our talk. In fact, it was the boom period in the mid-2000s that helped steer me from TV news to the energy sector. It was the oil bust in 2014 that drove me out of the fracking industry and into this podcast. So why is the oil and gas industry so volatile? The electric utility industry, which I also cover on this podcast, doesn't have these challenges. The price of electricity stays relatively the same. Why doesn't oil? This episode also wraps a trilogy of shows focusing on the COVID-19 pandemic. We discussed an event back on April 20th when oil prices actually went negative. What caused that? Was this the J.R. Ewing version of the great market crash of 1929? What I found most interesting in my interview for this episode is that for all the wild and crazy rides the industry has been on over the decades, it's at its heart a self-correcting market that works best when it's able to work out its troubles on its own. My guest today is Dr. Dean Foreman, Chief Economist at the American Petroleum Institute. Prior to API, Dean worked briefly for Saudi Aramco in Saudi Arabia. I think you'll like his insights on the kingdom and its OPEC partners. Dean also spent some time down in Texas like I did, and we talked a lot about how the industry could protect folks like the guys from my oil field days from yet another round of layoffs. Preparing for this interview, I felt like the world's most annoying dinner party guest. My questions were so basic, but I think like me, there are a lot of pieces to the oil and gas market that don't make sense to most lay people. And I spent seven years in that industry. Regardless, Dean was very gracious with his time, and I guarantee you'll learn a thing or two after this interview. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dean Foreman. We're here with Dean Foreman, Chief Economist for the American Petroleum Institute. And Dean, since I was a little kid, we were always told that OPEC drove the world's oil prices. Is that still the case? <laughs> well, Jay, thanks for having me on. Yeah. The questions when we get to how prices are formed globally, OPEC still has a fair degree of influence. There's no question about it. But they certainly don't set the price or control the price with any precision. And globally, no producer really does. So what is driving the price? Don't they have an outsized influence? 
Well, certainly through the supply that they bring to market, Saudi Arabia has acted as a bit of a swing producer in helping most recently get OPEC to cut production and support prices a bit. But the ability to precisely set it is definitely not there. And the fundamental thing that is setting prices is supply and demand. And we see this in spades as we've gone through the pandemic with COVID-19, how we've had just a record evisceration of demand in the United States and globally. And that's slowly coming back. We're seeing it. And this is a great experience in the sense of observing real data and how they're coming. And these are historic changes in the magnitudes of the shifts of both supply and demand. So from an economics perspective, it's both an interesting and important time to watch for energy markets because we're looking at it through a lens of changes that we've not seen before. You shared a document with me this morning. One of the things I found that was interesting was you have a chart that shows what the, I guess, break-even price for a barrel of oil is, and you mentioned a few regions for those who are familiar with it, some of the most popular shale plays, the Bakken in North Dakota, the Permian, Eagleford, they were over $40 a barrel. And so Saudi Arabia, who has the lowest break-even point of anyone? You know, it's a great debate in the sense that which cost do you want to look at? When we are showing this chart on break-even prices that are estimated by a firm called BTU Analytics, we're reporting their estimates of it as of April. And we're looking April 2020 versus April 29. And each of the major production areas across the United States for oil, those break-evens have continued to come down. And by break-even, we mean the market equivalent price for West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil that you need to at least break-even in drilling a new well. And as you said, the breakout is North Dakota and different parts of the Permian Basin, the Delaware and Midland basin sections, and then the east and west side of the Eagleford down towards San Antonio. Mm -hmm. And with those, only the east side of the Eagleford really breaks even at recent market prices. And when we're sitting at close to $40 a barrel, most of the others are a little bit out of the profitability in terms of these estimates. That is an issue. Now, when we want to compare to a Saudi Arabia, for example, on a pure oil lifting cost, just conventional oil coming out of the ground in Saudi Arabia, their break-even prices would be estimated by most price to be under $10 a barrel, yeah. plus or minus. So that there's no question that it's a step change. From a societal perspective, when you look at to meet social needs, what the whole of Saudi Inc. as an enterprise really needs to break even, not just its oil lifting costs, then you're talking $80 a barrel. So there's a real disconnect there in terms of the sustainability of current market mechanisms when most of the OPEC nations need something on that order to continue to have stable societies, stable politics, support their population, diversify their economies, foster growth. So therein lies a real problem if you're trying to just say, okay, we're going to set the price in a pure economic sense at what the break-even is for oil lifting. Well, that's just not socially sustainable for most of the world. And in that sense, the United States is extremely cost competitive. And these prices really do enable the U.S. to help position in an economic recovery to really help contribute and enable economic growth. I think what confuses a lot of people is that we are now being told that the U.S. is energy independent. We're a net oil exporter. So why do we still care about external pressures on supply? <laughs> it truly is a global market for oil and increasingly for natural gas as well. Even though as of last September, 
2019, the U.S. became for the first time a net oil exporter. We still import eight to nine million barrels per day, at least when we're in kind of a normal situation. And the reason is the geographic location of where we need oil. If it's, for example, on the east or west coast, you may not have all of the pipeline connectivity to go from a crude oil production basin in Texas to get there. The quality of oil that's needed, much of the refinery capacity in the United States is geared towards taking heavier oil from Canada, Venezuela, and other places around the world. And those heavier molecules are really key to not just the conversion processes that many U.S. refiners have, but the markets they serve. So if you want asphalt for roads, you want certain petrochemicals, those heavier carbon molecules that get broken down with heavier oils serve those markets in ways that light, sweet crude oil that's largely the product of the U.S. energy revolution can't entirely do. So we have a surplus of this light, sweet, very valuable crude oil that's great for making gasoline, diesel, maximizing our motor fuels, but isn't as great with those heavy molecules. So to make that up, we're going to continue to import, we're going to continue to export. And one of the costs, basically, of going through COVID-19 with the low prices, we've seen a massive downturn now, a record downturn in just a couple of months of the amount of crude oil supply coming in the United States. And as a result of that, what we're looking at is, I guess, relative to March, the data that we came out with today in our monthly statistical report for API show that we're down about 2 million barrels per day just in two months. And then coming into June, it's even lower. EIA had projected something like that, you know, 2 million barrel per day decrease by the end of June. We're ahead of schedule on that. And with that happening, this is the forefront of a change where we're seeing these big tectonic shifts in both supply and demand opening up, changing the market share globally, and really changing the way the trade is going for oil as well. So we saw after COVID-19 kicked off, a price war initiated by OPEC. After a month or so, de-escalated and turned into cuts to support prices, but really shocked the supply-demand balance and the trade in the interim. And the cost ultimately for the United States now, as of May, is that instead of being a net oil exporter for the month, we were a significant net oil importer. So that, whether you want to call it reversion or backsliding, <laughs> we've had a cost in terms of the U.S. energy independence of going through this shock. This president, probably more than any other president I've ever seen from either party, loves to wield tariffs. And so you mentioned that the oil market is global. Even the United States needs oil, depending on what the needs are from different countries. But I'm surprised that the president's never considered certain tariffs maybe to protect the price of oil. Is that possible? Well, just in recent months, the basic problem would be that you'd have unintended consequences yeah. and a lot of collateral damage. I mean, that's the answer. But it has been considered. It has been proposed, especially as states like Texas and Oklahoma and North Dakota have looked at possibly government intervention to prorate or reduce the amount of supply on market as if that was even needed, given the way the market was actually responding. Mm -hmm. So I, on behalf of API and Others had participated in these hearings, arguing that the market forces were working the way they're designed to work. And that has won the day so far. It's clear the market is working. But the proposals have come out of many corners to whether it's an import tax, whether it's a support mechanism, whether it's any kind of barrier to trade to try to protect that market. But what we talked about, about still needing to import a substantial amount of those heavy molecules, that the majority of our oil trade, a lot of it's Canada and Mexico, frankly, mm -hmm. and that's not trade that you want to impede. The objective here 
And the objective of a lot of the people that were proposing this was to push back basically against OPEC. You wouldn't hurt OPEC very much. And keep in mind that oil in particular is a fungible commodity for the most part. So with those quality differentials and location differentials that we talked about, a barrel's a barrel. So whether it's produced here or produced anywhere else in the world, as long as the demand is there, somebody's going to serve it, and then it becomes basically musical chairs as to how those barrels move around the world. <laughs> Certainly. Dean, I spent a lot of time in Texas in the fracking sector between 2011 and 2017. I went through at least one bust in that time. That was around 2014. Again, the energy independent statement. Why is the American oil industry still experiencing these boom and bust cycles like it's 1985? Like <laughs> and I dated a girl who lived in Midland, Texas. Texas. And then she was like, look, we were all driving bitlies and then was a ghost town. It was rough. Why are we still having this? Why are we still having these booms and busts in this industry? I empathize with you. I spent in my career 15 years in Texas, 10 in Dallas, and then <laughs> yeah. five in Houston and different stints, and was there at the end of 2014 when prices fell out. The best phrase is that the industry's been a victim of its own success. It's spurred this technological change that has almost completely eliminated the scarcity of oil on a global basis. This shale is in many places around the world, not just the United States. And we're really just exploiting the technology to its best extent here in the United States, where we have markets and infrastructure like almost nowhere else in the world. But with that, the growth that the United States experienced in terms of global oil market share came largely at the cost of OPEC. And now that you get a demand shock on top of it, mm. that was really unprecedented. If you hadn't had the demand shock, things had kind of stabilized, actually. If we look at where we were last year, you know, prices were down year on year. But when you looked at it, it was a relatively stable situation in the U.S. Energy Information Administration's estimates of the supply-demand balance and what it was doing with pricing were reasonably balanced until we got to this big shock. So with that, it's hard to say, you know, why do we have this cycle? This isn't just a normal business cycle. This is an unprecedented shock to demand that has all these follow-on effects for supply that otherwise were there. And I guess the last thing to add to that is that there is a natural maturation to the industry cycle as well. So that's not the same behavior that we saw at the end of 2014, which really was spurred, by the way, by Saudi Arabia initiating a price war. That was Saudi's initiative at the end of 2014 that lasted really till the third quarter of 2016. And much of what happened in the wake of COVID-19 was kind of a reprisal of that, really at least the way we read the way it's played out, maybe not initiated by Saudi this time, but a break between Saudi and Russia that spurred a price war and spurred an increase in supply in the face of lower demand, which any rational producer would normally cut back its supply in the face of lower prices in demand. So the way we've seen it happen, this is not a normal industry cycle, and the way we recover from it isn't going to be normal either, because we're now looking at unprecedented economic measures by central banks around the world, pumping some $9 trillion into the global economy, trying to perform active triage, get economies back open, and we have seen big increases in demand as a result of that over the last couple of months. So we are up close to 4 million barrels per day in just a few months as a result of the gradual reopening of states. And we're not where we need to be. We're still down close to 20% year on year. But as this continues to normalize, you have to have confidence that the oil and total energy demand goes hand in hand with economic growth. The linkage is absolutely inextricable. So it will come back. And then the question is, 
what mix of products, how and how fast, but have confidence that it is going in the right direction. Okay. One of the things in the report you sent me was you think the oil price of the industry will rebound by the end of this year, by the end of 2020, if I'm not mistaken. Now, one of the other things that's being brought up is this idea that we may start seeing a substantial amount of inflation. There's been a lot of money pumped into the system through all the stimulus. Would that affect the oil prices and the market? A couple of points here to be on point with the answer. The first is API does not put out a price outlook. We're not permitted to by antitrust reasons, but we do cite the EIA's price estimates. And what they see is that the market globally goes short oil starting in the third quarter of this year to the tune of about 3 million barrels per day, that that increases to 4 to 5 million barrels per day by the fourth quarter. And when the market historically has been in a deficit of that magnitude, that's tended to support prices. So by EIA's view, they have prices crawling up towards $50 a barrel over the next year or so. That's not huge recovery. It's not back up to pre-crisis levels, but it is directionally going there. And the futures markets have been showing something consistent with that. So that jibes, and, and that seems to make sense. On the macro side, you're right. There are concerns about what's happening with debt, with pumping the $9 trillion of stimulus in and what that might do to inflation or deflation. And really, deflation is the prime concern. If we mm. went back actually to the great financial crisis in 2008-9. People were concerned that if you expanded the Federal Reserve's balance sheet by $4 trillion, which they did, and cut rates to zero, that all of the stimulus would lead to ultimately economic rationality of price inflation. Mm-hmm. What we saw was that there was, unlike in the run-up to 2008-9, where there were shortages of certain commodities and price run-ups in oil and other commodities, after that crisis, there's been a lot of slack capacity for the last decade. China continues to bring hundreds of millions of people into the formal economy, so really no shortage of labor globally. And now that we're going through this crisis, there's even more slack capacity right, across pretty much every industry, and it's disruptive to certain industries. So we actually have a situation where we have prices going down. We have a lot of slack capacity. The concern is that everyone will become Japan. We're trying basically to pull out of a deflation trap and make sure that policy can incentivize good behavior. And the reason for that, if you're trying to explain it, it just in layman's terms, if you expect prices to go down in the future, it's really hard to get somebody to either buy or invest today. You You would just wait for the price to go down. It really is important from a policy perspective that healthy inflationary signals be coordinated as central banks try to have cogent policy around the world. Now, that said, foreign exchange rates are another element here. And on the U.S. side, the U.S. dollar has continued to be a safe haven and spiked to an all-time high as we went through this crisis. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we've seen so-called risk-off behavior where there's been in that flight to safety, a lot of selling off of oil and other commodities. And commodity-based currencies around the world depreciated to record amounts in a short period of time versus the U.S. dollar. It's a plus and a minus in the sense that foreign exchange rates are both signaling the pain around the world, but also providing a degree of flexibility for the system to hold together and adjust and work. Alan Greenspan, after 2009, he wrote a book called Age of Turbulence, where he predicted that eventually there would be this economic rationality, that it might not happen today, but eventually you would have hyperinflation as you go through this cycle. Here we are, and about five years after that, he retracted and said, explained why it was wrong. And here we are with that even stronger now, kind of on steroids, of the amount of stimulus that has been pumped in. I can't tell you that economic rationality won't come back 
at some point. But right now, the main concern is just performing that triage to make sure that we don't have a deflation trap. One of the things we just talked about was you said that this situation with COVID especially, it was also a price war that was happening about the same time. Is there anything else that we can do to help smooth out these fluctuations, no matter how out of the ordinary they may be? Because look, I've been in the electric utility industry for about two and a half years now. Half the electric utilities don't go bust every 10 years, <laughs> right? What would you recommend? Well, the industry can't manage prices, and it is yeah. a price taker, and you've got a lot of highly competitive individual buyers and sellers there. That's a good thing. It's a competitive market, and it has produced the right signals. We have to expect that there's going to be some natural maturation of this. It's not easy to accept from a local community standpoint when you go through that boom-bust cycle. It's really incredibly painful. As you were mentioning, being in Texas, I mean, we've been there. I've seen it experienced it and ridden through that cycle more than once now and been in this industry really back since 2002. As you see it go up and down, you just have to realize that that's part of the risk that goes with it, that the structural changes that have happened are good ones that actually advantage U.S. energy. So have confidence that it's going to come back. It's just a question of in what form those assets, the rocks, they're still there. And by the way, the key indicator that we at API really look at is productivity. Those break-even prices are nice, but they're enabled by when you drill a well, what do you get? How much oil and gas are you really producing when you drill it? And the productivity, both on the oil side and the gas side, has hit record levels across pretty much every production area, which tells us, you know, if we looked back a decade, that people didn't really understand why fracking, which isn't just hydraulic fracturing, it's 3D imaging, it's horizontal drilling, and today it's data analytics on top of it for real-time learning and targeting and really trying to improve the amount of resource that's in place that can actually be recovered. Those recovery factors have continued to rise, and at a molecular level, a decade later, people are really not just experimenting with it, but starting to understand at a molecular level why it actually works and get those recovery factors up. So there's a lot of upside, and we see it in the results where things that naysayers of the shale revolution said, oh, there, there are only so many so-called sweet spots, that that's going to be extinguished. And now we have things that would be considered tier two, tier three, historically, drilling locations as or more productive than the very best rocks ever were a decade ago. That productivity rising is really the bellwether for where the shale revolution goes. And in that sense, it really is good news. And it says that we will probably continue to be a victim of our own success. And we just have to find a right-sized way that really suits the global demand for energy. Right now, with this shock, this unprecedented shock, the supply of energy has been out of kilter with the demand, but it has adjusted also to record proportions just within a couple of months. So wait and see, but if <laughs> EIA is right here and the market goes short, there will be adjustment and a more healthy balance to come. I'm usually not too new centric, but I just wanted to mention for 2020, April 20th, that's a date that will soon not be forgotten. That was when we went to negative $40 a barrel oil. First time we've ever done that. Now, look, I mean, the oil industry has gone through some rough times before, but why was it negative for the first time only then? April 20th truly was an anomaly. And it was an anomaly based on storage conditions near Cushing, Oklahoma, very locally, having reached tank top and been full. And I want to make sure to be clear that this is not a blame speculators 
line of argument because speculation really does improve liquidity in the market, it encourages risk taking, and it does diversify and give people abilities to lock prices forward or sell production forward either way that you want to look at it. But it can be legitimate hedging as well as speculation. But when we look at what happened, the spot prices reconcile with the prompt month futures contract as it expires. And for those that may not be familiar with the way those futures contracts work for not just oil, but all commodities, if you hold it to the day it expires, <laughs> delivery is going to happen. Mm-hmm. You are obligated to take it. The question is, does the person that's the counterparty in that contract then have the ability to handle that fiscal delivery. Well, here's the way it works. 97% of commodity futures contracts are offset by equal amounts before they ever reach expiration. If you have a position where you have sold oil forward, you could reverse that by taking an equal and opposite position for the same contract tenure to the same amount, and basically just net a financial difference at that point. And that's the way most parties, 97% of those contracts, usually work. But what happened on really April 20th, as the contract was set to expire for May delivery on April 21st, you had a fair amount of parties that were just caught without the ability to get out of those contracts. There was no counterparty and no ability if you had to take delivery to actually go store it for reasonable costs. You had counterparties paying big money to get out of those contracts. And when we look at the mix as the Commodity Futures Trading Commission classifies who owns different sides of those contracts, only about 20% of the open interest for futures contracts at that point in time was on the producer and refiner commercial side. And the rest of it were in categories that they can label them as managed money, swap dealers, and other reportables. So these are financial entities that may in fact have some ability to handle fiscal delivery if needed, but it's not their primary business and there were limits to it. And truly an anomaly hasn't happened before. And before we got to the May 19th expiration for June delivery, the CFTC actually put out a warning and called that warning an intelligence test, but it reminded market participants that futures are risky vehicles, <laughs> that you need to be aware that these are the contractual obligations. And you know what? It didn't happen again. It didn't go negative in May. In that sense, the market has been resilient and learned, and we see it go forward. So normal risk-taking behavior with some reminder of what the riskiness of the vehicle is has continued to foster the market as well. So that's a good thing. And now the storage conditions specifically at Cushing have also normalized a bit. So we are seeing this normalization of supply and demand continue to play out as more state economies open up. And that's a good thing. Dean, with the negative $40 a barrel, who took that hit? Well, that's a closing price for a relatively small volume of contracts on a single day. You had some entity that was likely on that swap dealer managed money or other reportable side who needed to get out of the contract and paid i think the closing price in the day was actually 37 to 38 dollars sure. per barrel but you're right over the course of that afternoon it fluctuated toward 40. somebody paid on the margin that much because it was worth that much to them to get out from having to take fiscal delivery of the oil just for that right. one day right just for one day and, and keep in mind that when the contract expired on the 21st of april it ended with positive value now, there's nothing to brag about with 9 and $10 oil. Right? There's a low prices, <laughs> right. but it did have value. Yeah. It had positive value. 
Yeah. Going back a few years, you know, the reason that I became interested in the energy sector, oil, gas, utilities, all of it, was a TV news producer around 2004, 2005, and oil prices started just shooting up. And we kind of accepted this as a new normal. And I think at that point, my whole feeling was, is look, when oil prices are doing that, people are going to start looking to alternatives. And as you've seen over the resulting years, a move to renewables and all these different sources of energy. And then fracking came online. So help me understand this. I've always wanted to know this, even when we were reporting on it on local newscasts, I don't think anyone really understood what was going on. Why were oil prices rising in that mid-2000s time frame? And then I think they also shot up to almost $4 a gallon gasoline later in 2008. So what was going on during that time period? In the mid-2000s, let's call it the China effect, but it was really developing Asia in particular. It's economic growth accelerating, trade accelerating. And early in the podcast, we talked about, is there slack capacity in the economy? And what we had in in the mid-2000s was shortages of certain commodities, not just oil. So you had oil and other things going up in value because the demand for them was fundamentally outstripping the supply of it. And it wasn't that there was a complete shortage or inability to produce it. It was that the supply couldn't respond as fast as demand was growing. And you really had everything hitting on all cylinders there in Asia in particular, but there was just a global concerted upturn for several years that was pretty remarkable. And with that, oil prices rose. They peaked, I guess, just under $150 a barrel in real terms by mid-2008 before we had the crisis. So it really is supply and demand that set that price ultimately. And per your earlier question, it's also evidence where OPEC wasn't able to control the price then any more than they really can to control the price today. So you have this market change that you go through that sets up your precedent for thinking about how things are in modern day. And it really is a contrast of how much slack there is today and how despite having gone through a record economic expansion over the last 10 years, up until quite recently here, that we didn't run into any of those bottlenecks or shortages that were running up these prices. And that's by virtue of the energy revolution, especially in the United States and the technology that's come. So good changes with that historical perspective. It really does come down to supply and demand, though. And it's that demand that we're really looking at, along with the economy now going forward. Now I know. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve, help us understand that role that it's played during the COVID quarantine. Now, in late March, it was announced that SPR would purchase oil to fill their reserves. And by mid-April, the government announced they'd be leasing the reserve space for oil companies to store their oil. Those sound like two different activities. How do each of those activities help with the price of oil and helping with demand? In April, what they did is they announced out of the 70 million barrels, estimated 70 excess storage capacity that they had, that 30 of it would be opened up for commercial storage of mainly light oil. And of the remaining 40, some of it would have been light, but a lot of it would have been for heavier oil. So that didn't get really opened up. But it was instrumental that you had parties able, if they had the pipeline capacity to move their crude oil out of those local conditions, whether it was in the Permian Basin the Bakken or elsewhere, if they could get to that storage toward the Gulf of Mexico, then they had the availability of crude oil storage at a time that was critical for the market, and maybe they couldn't have found that storage locally. Point one, that helped stabilize the market. The second thing they did is the SPR actually purchased oil very quietly, but to the tune of about 15 million barrels. And when we've looked at the storage conditions, you know, 15 million barrels, that's a lot of build. And that's been on the magnitude of a whole month's worth of build during the worst of this. That 
also helps alleviate. So between the purchases and the availability of storage, those have really been helpful things from the Department of Energy. I did an interview actually earlier today with Steve Winberg at Department of Energy. I asked him a little bit about that. He said they were actually going to, at some point, sell it, possibly profit from that purchase, right? Steve's great. <laughs> That's exactly right. And this will be a nice precedent, right, where they actually bought low and sold high. <laughs> I can't think of any other situation where the government is making money like that. I'm not aware that that has happened before. <laughs> normally, normally they buy it when it's high and then they're, they're unloading it during some crisis situation when it's not. <laughs> well, there you go. Silver lining. Dean, I'm going to finish with the lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. More than a bridge a growing clean energy source that really has the ability to help human and economic development globally. Crude oil. The bread and butter of our transportation system globally it continues to be essential. And right now it's competitive in the energy mix as it's ever been. Nuclear. It plays a critical role in energy diversity and security. And in terms of electricity and a zero carbon environment, it has some features that can't be matched by other sources. Coal also has an important part in the energy mix. It's especially important to certain state economies in the United States. It's having to compete head on head against all of these other sources in the power sector and the societal challenges on the climate side have also put that into a new focus. There's a transition that's happened there that's natural, but it's an important part of the energy mix. Wind. Wind is great, increasingly economic in different parts around the country. If you're in Texas or Oklahoma or Wyoming, wind is highly economic and has continued to take some market share in electricity. It's, again, though, because of the intermittency of it and of solar, it has to be part of a diverse energy mix to be consistent with a cost-effective, reliable, and resilient electricity grid. Anything on solar by itself? I would put them together in the yeah. sense that there are places also where solar with its intermittency can still be highly cost effective. You have an additional element with wind, you think about where earth minerals may come from for the turbines. With solar, you think about where those panels are actually made. When we get to certain states and we say, okay, let's compare an oil and gas investment with a wind or a solar investment, the value add that you get in a state economy with oil and gas is still orders of magnitude higher because so much of it is really value added that's there through the local economy, through the value chain. If you purchase your solar panels, for example, from China and just have an installer put them into a place that's sunny in the United States, you may get some electricity out of it, but you haven't necessarily added tremendous value in the process. Thinking about those balances is also important to state economies as they think about what mix they want in their renewable portfolios. Biofuels. Also part of an important energy mix, the renewable fuel standard has been looked at and needs to continue to be looked at in context with what its role is. It was largely designed historically, if we're looking at corn-based ethanol, traditionally mm. produced in a different era, which was really meant to alleviate a shortage of oil. We're not there. We have to look at biofuels really from a well-to-wheel standpoint and think about how they fit in the energy mix. And right now, to the extent that they can be part of a energy transition in a lower carbon environment and be cost-effective in their production, they have a bright future as well. Hydroelectric. Also very important in certain states and countries where you have it as part of the energy mix. It's your endowment of resources. There's no reason not to use it, but the ability to grow it is also quite limited. With that, you want to continue to take advantage of it, but it ends up being one of the more stable parts of the power mix. Geothermal. Locationally specific. <laughs> as we have increases in the economies of drilling 
that have helped through the shale revolution, this can also help geothermal. But because of that geographic specificity, the ability to scale it up has also been quite limited. Potentially, a lot of things to think about there, but it, it's not going to scale up like some of the other sources that we've discussed. Energy storage. This is one of the key wildcards. If energy storage comes down tremendously in cost, as some expect, it competes versus the need to have smaller electricity generation units that can flex up and down if there's more intermittency in the network. Now, this is key to look at it as first in terms of the break-even costs as those come down. The costs for battery storage as they're falling are still in the end game expected by most to be an order of magnitude more expensive than some of the fossil sources that we have today currently. There is a cost trade-off and we have to think about if the purpose is using that to flex to essentially lower or eliminate greenhouse gas emissions. You have to look at it in terms of the cost effectiveness in doing so. Today, not terribly cost effective, but people have a lot of hope for the future. But there's no question that that's one of the wild cards to watch. Electric vehicles. Exciting transition that is coming by policy pull around the world. The technology continues to improve. We have to look at what the cost effectiveness is of it, and frankly, who's paying for whom. <laughs> the average household that buys an electric vehicle earns $100,000 a year or more. It's quite a challenge to explain to the average person why their tax dollars are being used in a way where you're putting big tax credits in favor of the most affluent households at that point. So there are lots of people that want the leading edge technology. They feel good from an environmental standpoint that there's no tailpipe emission. But, oh, by the way, if you live in a state where the majority of your electricity is generated by coal, you're not necessarily eliminating emissions. You're just changing the source of energy efficiency. Absolutely the low hanging fruit. So demand management, energy efficiency, these are the things that should be promoted aggressively because there's a cost to it, but it really is just getting more out of what you have today. And those programs tend to be some of the very most cost-effective in advancing both energy transition issues, climate issues, and frankly, just the efficiency of the overall economy in the process. And finally, fusion power. <laughs> yeah, We'll have to see the reality of its potential. I would put that with many other technologies that have been held out for decades as being a bit of a grail of if you have this breakthrough, what it could mean. It's something that could be extremely meaningful if one, it exists on a commercial scale and then could it economically be scaled up. When we're looking at the time frame of changes, though, and this applies to many of the sources that we've talked about, we have a lot of embedded capital in existing systems that can't just be erased overnight. And you see it even as we go through COVID-19 and the shock here that just the changes that we've experienced this year in terms of what they've done to the economy, it's been a tremendous cost to go through this degree of change. And some will highlight that emissions have come down this year as a result of it, but at what cost? And mm. that's the kind of thing when we put new investments into place, there's no role for government to be picking a winner or loser here. But government should be fostering the technology and its development. And then once they reach a critical phase where they can stand on their own, then they must stand on their own. I can't tell you that Fusion or any other Grail-like source is really going to deliver in the time frame that we're looking at, but let's hope. Let's hope that we have something like that. Absolutely. All right. Dean Foreman, American Petroleum Institute, thank you so much for your time. Jay, thanks for having me. It's been a really great conversation. I appreciate your really thoughtful questions. Thank you.
That was Dean Foreman, chief economist for the American Petroleum Institute. You heard me reference a new quarterly report from API. That'll be linked on the website. I want to thank Dean again for his time, giving us all a clearer understanding of our vital oil and gas industry. I also want to thank David McGowan, API's Southern Region Director and Executive Director of the North Carolina Petroleum Council, for setting this up. You can find plenty of pictures, including that report, on energy-cast.com, as well as on Instagram and Parler at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes that gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 87. Be sure to join us next week when we learn how to build a solar farm. Until then, I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time.